Hello, I'm Matt Burgess. Uh, this is the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm joined by Oliver Hartwich. Hi, Oliver. Hi. This has been a w- big week uh, in New Zealand policy. Yesterday, we had the uh, big housing policy announcement from the government. Submissions closed to the Climate Change Commission's uh, draft emissions budget this Sunday of all days. Uh, and this week's been big for another reason, because our executive director, Oliver, has just been granted New Zealand citizenship. Oliver, any regrets with your decision to become a New Zealander? No, absolutely none, because I think I'm well prepared for New Zealand citizenship because this country is about to make exactly the same mistakes that my home country, Germany, has been making for 25 years. Which brings us to the Climate Change Commission, I presume. So uh, the Commission put out its draft report on 31 January, 847 pages um, of pretty uh, questionable analysis and thinking and logic and strategy, I would say. That's pretty much the gist of our submission that we're putting the finishing touches on this week. Um, New Zealand's going down a track, I think it's fair to say. We're in serious jeopardy of going down a track that other countries have already been down, in particular Germany. Oliver, why don't you tell us about what has been happening in Germany over the last 20 years? Yeah, and that's why I said I'm totally prepared for New Zealand citizenship. I was only half ironic. I mean, Germans are very ironic, as you know, we've got a great sense of humour. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I wrote my column this week for Newsroom about German energy policy. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not a kind of topic that um, people probably want to read, but it's a really interesting story because mm. if you study German energy policy and European energy policy, you can learn a lot. And it's mainly what not to do because there is no country in, in the world with a worse energy system than Germany. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. Germany is a complete disaster zone for energy policy. So I really wanted New Zealand readers to know about that because we can avoid so many mistakes. We can learn so much. And especially in the context of the Climate Change Commission's report, I thought it was really worthwhile going back to Germany and studying what happened there. So let me tell you my starting point. My starting point is in 2004. I was in the final stages of finishing my PhD. It was a PhD on law and economics, on advertising, regulation and competition law, not that that matters. But anyway, I was very interested in economic policy making, as I still am. And I remember at the time reading a report coming out of the Academic Advisory Council to the Federal Economics Ministry in Berlin. And that was interesting because it was a report written by the leading economists in the country about German energy policy. And they wrote it to analyze two questions. First, Germany's had renewable energies policies since the mid-1990s. So the idea was always to push renewable electricity, especially wind and solar and some biomass, and um, really make them competitive with the traditional sources of energy. But now, I mean, that was early 2000s, there was a new challenge how to combine all of this with a new emissions trading scheme in Europe, which was about to start in 2005. these um, economists at the Academic Advisory Council to the Federal Economics Ministry just wanted to figure out how do we get these two together. And in their report to the Federal Economics Minister, they came to the conclusion that, well, you can't, because once you introduce that emissions trading scheme, basically you are solving this problem of climate change and renewable energies and forget about um, discrete interventions and subsidies and feed-in tariffs and all of the other stuff because it would be pointless, it would be superfluous because you do not change emissions by a single gram of carbon dioxide but you're spending enormous resources 
trying yeah, to the, achieve that. It's the principle that you can only cap emissions once. If you exactly. kept it with the ETS, uh, other policies, you're either capping it with policy or the ETS. It can't be both. Indeed. So I, I read this in 2004 and I thought, well, this is a relatively easy principle. I mean, any kind of economist with about five minutes of economics training would understand this. Why would any country go for that? Well, it's not just uh, German ministry saying it, it's the IPCC as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, 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 that, well, came, well, that came later. Um, wait for it. This is 2004. I mean, at the time, this was the first time I ever read it. And then, of course, um, economic textbooks in Germany wrote um, about the um, effect of uh, the incompatibility of an ETS with other measures. But that, that was the first time I read about it. So it was about 17 years ago. It came out in January 2004. I read about it afterwards when I worked in Britain. So in Britain, Ofgem, the British electricity generate, uh, regulator, actually, they came to the same conclusion, just like their German colleagues. Then back to Germany, the Monopolies Commission, which is a German competition advisory body to the federal government, they wrote another report in the, uh, I think it was around 2008, 2009, and they said exactly the same. And then in 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so the IPCC, the world's leading advisory body on climate change, came to exactly that conclusion. Just as uh, the German economists said a decade earlier, they said, well, look, once you've got an emissions trading scheme, forget about any other policies. It doesn't work. You can't combine them. Well, let, me, let me just read what the IPCC said, because it's, um, it's pretty a beautiful clear. quote. If a cap and trade system has a sufficiently stringent cap, then other policies such as renewable subsidies have no further impact on total greenhouse gas emissions. And it really is that simple, isn't it? It is that simple. By the way, that was exactly the conclusion from the Germans in 2004. So I reread that piece actually for my column and news from this week. And it was a wonderful read because it was clear, it was well written. And um, the conclusion actually only took about half a page. And all of it's so easy. Let's stay with Germany, but let me just jump in and very quickly point out that New Zealand's Climate Change Commission has acknowledged that an ETS also stops other policies having any effect on emissions. Yes. They do it three times in their report. Uh-huh. Um, so kind of an important point when you're proposing uh, sweeping reforms of the entire New Zealand economy mm-hmm. that, in your own words, will not reduce emissions. That's exactly right. So really, after 17 years, we have all sorts of in, in interesting and illustrious bodies in Europe and in New Zealand and worldwide saying exactly the same thing. Once you have an emissions trading scheme, you cannot cut emissions any other way because a cap is a cap is a cap. And sorry, let's be absolutely clear. Let's distinguish between the politics, which says, look, you know, it's hard for governments not to do other policies. Let's acknowledge that that's how the politics works and take that as given. That's separate from the basic arithmetic of a cap and trade system that if you've got, in the end, if, if a ETS binds on emissions, it's the number of permits in that scheme that decides emissions and nothing else. Exactly. It's, it's, just, a, it's just arithmetic, isn't it? There's no, it's, it's, it's like gravity. It's like gravity. It's um, it's a bit hard to understand. It takes about five minutes to explain that. We've done that on previous podcasts. I'm always looking for the right kind of imagery around it. I mean... What could you take? You could take a baby bath, you know? You can fill a baby pool with water, but uh, even though you might put in more water and more water and more water, it will not rise beyond 25 centimeters because that's the rim, and beyond that it kind of overflows and the water's gone. It's a bit like that with an emissions trading scheme. So you cannot cut more emissions because you've already defined the rim in that case, which is the cap. Mm. So it is not really 
that hard to understand. It's just not popular if you're a politician because you would like to do a bit more and you would like to do a little bit more on top. And the problem with an emissions trading scheme really from a political perspective is it's invisible. You know, the changes happen almost automatically. It's a price system. It's a market. People are trading with each other. It's not very sexy. If you're a politician, you want to cut a ribbon somewhere. Yeah, it's understandable why politicians, um, it's hard for politicians to go against the flow because, you know, in the end, the the ideas in the equilibrium really doesn't favour just doing an ETS. But we've got an independent climate change commission. They're Mm -hmm. not elected. They're the ones who are supposed to know all about this stuff. Shouldn't they be saying uh, we should just do an ETS if, in fact, that's what the um, the economics and the science arguably tells us? Well, see, that is the great irony of the whole thing. We introduced the Climate Change Commission precisely because we wanted to take the politics out of it. Well, turns out the politics are still in it, and uh, the Climate Change Commission is just playing um, the politician's role. So they are now trying to tell us what we should do precisely, rather than leaving it to this anonymous ETS, which is this really anonymous market scheme trading carbon emissions with each other, coming to efficient solutions, but not very visible. And the, the model's right in the sense that the commission is independent. It doesn't have to worry about being elected. It can say unpopular things. It's only advisory, right? It's supposed to be the expert that says unpopular things if that's what the evidence and the science tells it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's in the end, it's up to the government to decide what accepts it accepts and what it doesn't, right? So that's the, exactly right. The model's right. The model is right. here you have the Com- Climate Change Commission leading the politicians down the politically popular but actually completely ineffective mm. uh, emissions policy. But you know what? It's not just a model. Um, and that was the second part of my newsroom column this week. It is not just a model that is theoretically right. It is something that works practically as well. So the Europeans, they introduced their emissions trading scheme in 2005. So in the beginning, it didn't work particularly well, one must admit, because the Europeans over-emitted certificates. So there were too many emissions certificates for too few emissions. And by the end of the first trading period, which was around 2007, the price of certificates had plummeted to about zero euros. So the Europeans then tried to tighten it a bit. They changed the rules of the game a bit. And they still... To be fair, there was a GFC in there somewhere, I think. Well, that came later. And that was the second trading um, period, of course. And that's where the Europeans found they had once again emitted too many certificates. So the price actually tumbled towards the end of that trading period because of the GFC, because of the euro crisis. But after that, they kind of got things under control. These were the usual teething problems of an emissions trading scheme. But towards the end of it, um, the price recovered. And now, today, the price of a European certificate is around 43 euros. So it's about, I think, $68 New Zealand. No, 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 that's that's more like 80. It's a big number. Well, it is a big number. Um, Actually, I I did calculate it for my newsroom column. You can find it there. Just um, Google it on my website. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. The thing is, in Europe, it has doubled the price of coal. So coal has become virtually uncompetitive overnight because the price of certificates in the European Union, in the ETS, in in the EU has gone up. It's actually gone up so much that even um, gas, which was seen as this kind of transition fuel towards lower emission fuels, is uncompetitive as well. And some Europeans are now crying out loud because they say, well, that can't be right. Well, in fact, that's exactly how an emissions trading scheme should work because over time it takes the most polluting fuels out of the system that's exactly how it should work. And it's demonstration that it works. And by the way, the um, European Union looked into the efficiency of the emissions trading scheme in Europe and found that after 13 years of operation, 
those sectors in the European Union covered by the European ETS, they cut their emissions by 29%. Whereas other parts of the economy not covered by the European ETS only cut their emissions by 10%. So you can actually see that the emissions trading scheme yielded the results that you want. It was much more effective than just relying on regulations and policy interventions. So this is the living example that an emissions trading scheme can deliver the reductions we all want to see. You know, that's a that's a surprise. Look, when you look at the literature on the effectiveness of the ETS, there's been quite a bit of it that's coming out in the last three or four years because emissions trading prices around the world have, have gone through the roof, as they have here. They've gone up five times, uh, I think. Since well, four times since um, 2016. It's a big increase. Uh, it's happened without anyone really noticing, which I think is a great sign for the ETS. You know, I wrote that study switched on uh, a couple of years ago that spent, I think, the first um, chapter of the report looked at Germany. and the thing Which was a fantastic report, by the way. I thought so. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I think we have to be modest here. <laughs> uh, and we are, because yeah. it, um, it, it's just that good. Um, no, the totally thing that stayed with you. me, though, from that is, you know, just occurred to me when you're talking about uh, the ETS, it got underway before 2010. 2010 yes. or 2011, actually, is when uh, Merkel announced the big expansion in the German renewables policy. Now, the thing that scares me is that Merkel's policy um, did not turn out well. Germany's burning roughly as much coal now as it did back then after having built thousands of wind turbines and millions of solar panels. In fact, I think Germany had more than half the world's installed solar capacity in 2013, I think it was, uh, at the same time as being one of the least sunny countries in the planet. I think the fourth least sunny country in the planet. Sorry about that. You must. I can see why you came to New Zealand. Yeah, I was so depressed in Germany. The thing that scares me is that at the, at the time, in 2011, when the policy was announced, mm -hmm. Germany had an ETS, Europe had an ETS, the, f um, the futility of building, uh, nothing wrong with wind or solar per se, but they're not effective if you don't have a way to store energy so that your intermittent generation from solar and wind, the energy can be available when you need it. Now, New Zealand has uh, batteries in the form of its lakes um, in the South Island, um, but Germany doesn't have that. The, the failure of that enormously expensive policy at least half a trillion euro, probably one and a half trillion once you've accounted for transmission, one and a half trillion euro the failure of that policy was entirely predictable, and they still did it. Yes, it was entirely predictable. Is and New Zealand on the same track? Yes, I think we're on the same track. Look, um, I think you're triggering me here because um, I really don't like talking about Germany. Well, that's a joke. Well, um, I do, so let's... Well, um, okay. Oh, right. Oh, well, okay. Um, <laughs> turns out we both do. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, seriously, German energy policy has been a complete disaster for the last 25 years, and I can just give you a few examples of the things happening in Germany. So it started under the Schröder government in the 1990s and early 2000s, and it was continued by Merkel. The initial goal was to just phase out fossil fuels because of climate change. Merkel added to that phasing of nuclear power as well after Fukushima, which happened, of course, in 2011. So, you know, you had a tsunami in Japan and you had a nuclear power station failure and uh, catastrophe in Japan as well. And because, of course, Germany gets tsunamis all the time, 
Sorry, that was irony once again. Um, Merkel decided to switch them off all at <laughs> once. It was a ridiculous policy decision uh, because it was it was literally the day after Fukushima. It was right? literally the day after Fukushima. How much time for uh, analysis behind that one? Well, it had nothing to do with the fact, of course, that Merkel faced a, a serious state election in Baden-Württemberg, and they had a very <laughs> strong Greens candidate in Baden-Württemberg, <clears throat> who later became a state premier out of that out of Fukushima, and he still stayed premier and just won his third election just a few weeks ago. Anyway, um, so out of all of these political reasons, Merkel decided to switch off nuclear as well. And suddenly, this whole concept of energy vendor, you know, trying to find alternative sources of energy, became a lot harder because it was not just about fossil fuels, it was about uh, phasing out nuclear as well. Now, try to do that in Germany, where the sun doesn't really shine that much and where the wind only blows around the North Sea and the Baltic Sea, but probably not so much in Bavaria. It's bloody hard. And the Germans invested mightily into renewable energies. The problem is, of course, um, Germany cannot really do this on its own, but they're lucky because they're surrounded by other countries that are, that are not as crazy as the Germans. So when Germany experiences days when the sun doesn't shine and when the wind doesn't blow, and they've got a name for that, they call it the Dunkelflaute. It's a wonderful name. Dunkelflaute means it's it's dark, dunkel, and flaute means the wind doesn't blow. So on Dunkelflauten days in Germany, they get the coal-fired power from Poland and they get the nuclear power from France and everything is fine. On other days, when unexpectedly the sun shines in Germany and the wind blows too, they produce too much of that stuff. They produce too much electricity, but because they've got guarantees that whoever produces renewable energy can always feed it into the grid regardless, the grid would collapse if they didn't find a way to get rid of it. So energy prices in Germany at times go negative, and it's now quite a regular feature. So about... Um, I think, I think each of the last seven Christmas days, the wholesale energy price has been negative. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just Christmas. I think it's on about 40 days a year now that electricity prices go negative in Germany. That's when they start pumping water uphill just to get rid of the electricity, or they pay their European neighbors to please take our energy because we don't know what to do with it. On other days, of course, the Germans import this stuff at ridiculous costs from the neighboring countries. You know what? You can do all of this kind of thing, all of this kind of stuff, if you are rich enough. If you are a rich country like Germany, you can afford this kind of folly, and especially you can afford it if you're surrounded by not so stupid countries. For for New Zealand, of course, we can't do this. In New Zealand, we have to get things right because we are not part of a wider electricity grid. We have no cable to Australia that might bail us out, and so we have to get things right here. By the way. Another thing about Germany that's probably quite interesting to um, consider, it's, you know, where the wind blows and where the sun shines are not the places where the factories stand. So you always have to bridge that gap. You have to bring the energy from some parts of the country to other parts. And therefore, the Germans are currently really frantically trying to upgrade their grid because the grid is not made for that. The grid is not made for decentralized power uh, production in some parts of the country and consumption in others. And that is ridiculously expensive. And New Zealand will probably face the same problem at some stage if we're going to full electrification, for example, of transport. The thing that scares me, another thing that scares me about Germany is that uh, I think German households are paying literally double uh, the electricity price that we pay here, the second highest price in the world last I checked as of two years ago, just behind Denmark, I think. Energy bend is still a popular policy. How is that possible? Because the Germans are very moral people, they think they're doing the right thing because they think they are moving away from fossil fuels and nuclear power. Germany is subsidizing its coal plants to keep the lights on. How yes. is that moral? 
Um, well, the Germans don't really think too much about that. They only see the headlines and they feel good about themselves and they're showing the world how things can be done. And that's how Germany would like to present itself to the world anyway, because they are the good guys now after 45. They've learned all the lessons of the past and now they actually set an example for the world. Th that is the German mindset, unfortunately, um, with the best of intentions, but it doesn't work. And it produces really hilarious outcomes. For example, actually burning more coal than ever before kind of free riding on your neighbor's policies and, and, and sensibilities. Um, it is a weird kind of country energy-wise. In the meantime, by the way, the Germans have actually wrecked their big energy companies. I mean, RWE used to be one of Europe's biggest utility companies, um, actually headquartered in my hometown of Essen. It's a shadow of its former self because they had to simultaneously get out of coal-fired power stations and nuclear power, and they didn't get compensated for either properly. So... No matter where you look, German energy policy is a complete and utter disaster. I think another thing that strikes me about Germany and also Britain is, and as also New Zealand, uh, as of until 40 years ago, 45 years ago, is the tendency for a little government intervention in these really complicated systems to turn into a lot. You know, you intervene in one place, something weird happens, you have to intervene in another, and next thing you know, you're subsidising coal plants uh, as part of your emissions policy. I think you know we saw exactly that sort of thing happening under Muldoon. Um, I think we're, uh, it seems almost inevitable at this point that we're going to go back to that place under this government given its apparent intent to build Onslow, subsidise renewables, etc, etc. New Zealand's actually extraordinary because we're, I think, as far as I'm aware, we are the only electricity system in the OECD that has no technology subsidies. We simply ask renewables to compete on a level playing field um, with other generation types. And guess what? Renewables win. We've had massive investment over the last 15 or 20 years in geothermal and wind in particular, and they just pay their own way like everybody else. Isn't that wonderful? Living proof that renewables work, possibly the only actual evidence we have that an, uh, that renewables can win in a, in a competitive market against um, thermal alternatives. Yep. And that's exactly right. And that's why I, when I first came to New Zealand, I was really impressed with the electricity system. I thought um, New Zealand had it um, kind of the best of all worlds. So on the one hand, um, high share of renewable electricity. On the other hand, um, not a single dollar of government subsidies or intervention. A really open well, it, it, market It ticks system. every box. It's very green. Yes. It's, it's stable. It's reliable. Yep. And it's affordable. We're some of the most affordable electricity in the world. So naturally, exactly. a left-leaning government wants to intervene to fix things. Well, but <laughs> New Zealand sake. had its um, energy trilemma sorted. And <sighs> of all countries in the world, I could not imagine a better functioning market than New Zealand was. We're on track for 95%. That's what all the uh, forecasts tell us. And the government wants to break that market to get to 100 Exactly. For goodness sake. Yes. Come on. And and so that is the thing that really frightens me. And that's why I don't understand when I look at the Climate Change Commission's report, do they really want to turn us into Germany? We have a functioning electricity market. We have a good energy system. Everything is working reasonably well. We are on track of reaching 95% renewable, something that even Germany can only dream of. So everything is fine in New Zealand. And yet we are bound to make the same mistakes that the Germans and the Europeans have been making for the last 20 odd years. So instead of actually saying, fantastic, we've got an emissions trading scheme that's even better than the European scheme because the European scheme doesn't cover the full economy. Our scheme basically 
covers every part of the economy bar agriculture. In, in Europe, for example, transport, road transport is excluded from it. So we have a fantastic scheme set up. We can deal with the challenges of climate change. The Climate Commission itself tells us we're on track of reaching our targets. And even without policy change, we are... The, the Commission says yes. we have the tools already in place to deliver. They expressly say that. Indeed. We are we getting the tools towards in place. So just about 6 million tonnes of emissions left by 2050 without any further policy change. No, no, no. At an ETS price lower of than we currently have. Exactly. At by 50, 50 bucks, we get to net zero. And we can stay there. Exactly. So we've got it all right. We've got a well-functioning electricity market, and yet we are trying to become more like Germany. It is just bizarre. I didn't take New Zealand citizenship to turn this into Germany. Well, you, um, you've got good experience on how, to, how not to do things uh, that's going to be uh, relevant over the next five years. But uh, I've got something even more frustrating, I think. Because you said, okay, the Germans are paying the highest electricity prices in the world, and that's true. Well, actually, I think the Danes might... Second highest. Yeah. Second highest. But Denmark is another interesting case. Nevertheless, the Germans are not out in the street protesting which they should, probably should be because the whole thing happens behind people's backs. They're paying their electricity bills. They don't quite know why it is as expensive as it is because that takes a few minutes of thinking about it. And um, people are not that switched on when it comes to thinking about economic policy. And so my fear is really that all of this stuff is happening here without the public even taking notice of it. Yeah, the boil the frog theory. No, no sharp edges. Nobody notices that... Um standard of living is declining unnecessarily um, as emissions don't move. And because actually that's yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking about policies so bad they could raise emissions. Indeed. Um, and I mean, that's basically what's happening in Germany as well. I mean, a country that now burns more coal because of its attempts to get out of fossil fuels. I mean, it doesn't get more ironic than that. Yeah. Let's talk about the um, Climate Change Commission's report. Uh, submissions closed the Sunday, as we said. Uh, we've had you know, a couple of months nearly to go through the report. The thing, you know, it's a lot, it's 800 pages a lot. There's a few things at this point that um, s stick with me about what I've been looking at uh, over that period. The first is how little the commission says in 847 pages. It's a repetitive, shallow document that um, could have said so much more and should have said so much more given the extraordinary scale of ambition of its proposals. Um, but in 800 pages, there's no room to walk through the logic of how its policies get around the, the problem that an ETS caps emissions so its policy shouldn't work. It doesn't take the time to walk through the argument for why um, that's not right in this case. Now, that's their whole strategy. They've got dozens of recommendations to all of these things from banning gas connections to imports of vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. There's a real risk here that none of it's going to do anything to cut emissions. And they don't, they don't have time in 800 pages to w explain to us why that's, um, how they're getting around that problem. They acknowledge that problem exists, but don't feel the need to explain why it's not an issue and then go ahead and, and propose all their policies anyway. The other thing I would say is, um Today, we're recording this podcast on the 24th of March, marks uh, more than four weeks since you lodged an Official Information Act request with the Commission, and you wanted to find out about um, their assumptions around electric vehicles in the report. 
and electric vehicles, of course, the transformation of transport plays a massive role in the climate commission. The centerpiece report. policy of the Indeed. whole of the whole and yet, report. Matt, um, just checking with you now, but I don't think you've received a response yet, have you? I haven't. I, I think I'm going to get one at 4:59 today to say that it's um, it's been postponed. It's, it's too hard. Yeah. Yeah. No. Obviously. Um, so, <laughs> when take this as past pro toto, the commission hasn't been too forthcoming with its assumptions. It has not, and th we don't know how much it's held back. It hasn't given us a reason for why it's held anything back. Um, we can only speculate, but in the end, we don't know answers to important questions like how do you get EVs to go uh, to win in your model that's supposed to be minimising costs. Yeah. Its report shows that EVs are expensive currently, going to be much more affordable in the future. Why isn't the strategy that we do other things first and EVs later? How did they get around that? We suspect the answer is they're using um, questionable assumptions, negative costs, um, maybe in the mix there. If they are, we absolutely need to get access to those assumptions so we can test them, go and read the literature. The policy has to stack up and we don't have a way to check whether it does or not. Uh, and we're in serious danger of, of simply going down this path that Germany and other countries have already gone down of making these huge investments uh, without any assurance, in fact, reasonable certainty that they will not cut emissions at all. So we've talked about this, of course, in previous podcasts, so I think our listeners would be well familiar with these arguments. But just looking forward now, what do you expect is going to happen after Sunday? So the Commission's um, uh, submission phase concludes on Sunday. I think they've now received thousands of submissions. But um, what will happen afterwards? They have to report to Parliament by mid-May. Uh, in May, yeah. Yeah, and then... Uh, what will follow from that? Look, I think I think the first thing that's going to happen is I think we're going to see that the Commission has had a lot more pushback than probably what most people expected. I think they've just gone a bit, they've been a bit too ambitious, a bit uh, not quite forthcoming enough. Their report is, is poor on every dimension, and I think um, the average, some of the things they've said have cut through to the average punter who wouldn't even think about Wellington in most circumstances. The ban on gas has, has reached... Um, people who don't think about Wellington. I think that's going to turn into pressure to do better uh, in the future. Um, my suspicion is they won't move too far um, from their draft report and their final report. They'll give the government their report and then it's up to the government to decide what to do with it. The government will accept the report in the legal sense under the legislation. The government, if it doesn't accept it, then it, the government has to come up with its own recommendations and then do a whole new round of consultation on that. That's a lot of time and effort. The government can just accept it and I think it will. Then the question in the government's hands and ultimately in Parliament's hands is which recommendations does it do first and which does it do later. My guess is that the government will be unwilling to do things that hurt in the short term. So we'll see the government commit to uh, a number of policies that's all built around subsidi new subsidies for things, whether it's electric vehicles, renewable energy, things like that, um, coal conversions and so on. They're already, the government's already doing that, so we'll see more of that. I think the government will commit to banning, the big policy is the ban on imports of petrol and diesel vehicles beginning in 11 years. I think the government will, will join Britain and other countries in saying we will ban, New Zealand will also ban those vehicles, maybe by the mid-2030s, but some point well beyond the term of this government, mm. so that the pain uh, is... is comes later and therefore doesn't bite right now. I think the government will be reluctant to do anything that hits the back pockets of, of New Zealanders. Perfectly understandable. Um, 
the big question, I think, is what does the National Party do in response to, to all of this? Is the National Party prepared to stand up and say, um, we support emissions targets, we want to do what works, show us the evidence this, um, this is going to work, these policies will actually deliver, we'll support it, but we won't otherwise. That's what we need to hear from National. The temptation for National will be to go along with all of this, as they did with the Zero Carbon Bill, uh, presumably out of fear of being called deniers. Now, I think the work that you and I have done, Oliver, over the last um, couple of years establishes that you can agree with the principle of reducing emissions while at the same time questioning, um, demanding good policy and rejecting bad policy as a way to get to those targets. I think we've established very clearly that there is a market for um pushing back on ineffective policy that doesn't expose you to claims of being a climate denier. And so National has to see that opportunity, uh, and it's hard to see maybe if you're a National, takes a bit of work to get there, but they've got good people looking at it. Um, we, we know that's going on, and so hopefully National is willing to do a bit better than it did last time on the Zero Carbon Bill. And I have to say, um, haven't been more disappointed in any political party <laughs> Um, even after this week than uh, what I was when National decided to support that awful zero carbon bill. It was a shocker. Well, coming weeks will be interesting. I think we'll probably have to leave it here. But I'm also sure we're going to talk again. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.